This is the story of a boy who lost his family, his home, and his heritage. A boy who traveled hundreds of miles cold, starving, and afraid. But he never gave up his fight to be free. His name is Monyak, and our mission is to preserve his legacy. This is Creating Hope After Hate. I thought I was ready to see it, you know, because like I knew what had happened. I had read up about it. I thought I was prepared. You know, like I've known about the Holocaust since third grade. But as soon as the bus turned the corner and we saw Auschwitz-Birkenau, like my heart just sank. And it, it changes everything seeing it with your own eyes. Auschwitz's name is as well known as the Holocaust. It is the most infamous concentration camp and extermination camp that the Nazis built. 1.1 million people lost their lives here alone, one million of them being Jews. Other victims included Poles, Soviet prisoners of war, Roma, Jehovah's Witnesses, communists, and homosexuals. Prisoners were forced to wear identifying markings on their prison uniforms, depending on who they were and why they were there. For example, Jews wore a yellow Star of David, homosexuals had a pink triangle, and Jehovah's Witnesses had purple triangles. We said goodbye to our Chinstahova guides before taking off. office directly and Magda you're with a different division right with the promotion department and I think they arranged really really beautiful food and everything thank you very much we're on the road now and we're we're heading to Auschwitz at Birkenau which I you know, I feel is probably going to be a have a strong effect on every member of this tour. It is a very educational but emotional experience and you know, I think we should all just be prepared for that. So you've visited Auschwitz before? Twice. You've visited? This would be my third trip. Wow. I'm Jody. And you've never been Madison and I? Correct. And I've never been, okay. Is there anything you would want to tell us before we witness it ourselves or? Yeah, um, I would encourage everybody to see everything. And, and but I, you know, I won't, wouldn't force anybody to go see something they don't want to, but I think, I think it's important. And if, you know, if, if you're emotion, it affects you emotionally, you know, we, you've got a group here that you can talk it out or hug it out or whatever you need to do to get through it. There's kind of a movement within talking about the Holocaust or the Shoahs, it's referred to uh, by a lot of Jews. You like not show the, the, the disturbing things. Uh, and I, you know, I kind of disagree with this personally, it's just my personal opinion. It's just that I've, it's not that I, you know, want to see anything gory or anything, but, but I think people need to see like what the worst is. Like I've, I've told this story many times. I. You know, I'd, I'd read all, you know, read books and I knew all the statistics and, you know, knew basically everything that was happening with, you know, at least the general um, outline of events that happened during the Holocaust. 
but it wasn't until I went to a, a concentration camp that it became real to me. Because, you know, you hear six million Jews were killed, right? And you're like, oh, man, that's horrible, right? But you don't, you don't really grasp how big that is. Or I didn't until I, until I looked at a Dachau outside of uh, Munich, Germany. Also, so with, with the six million Jewish, like, that's a lot, but like, you know, you have to see it kind of to like really imagine it and grasp it. I took a history of modern Germany class uh, my sophomore year, and 30% of Poland was wiped out during World War II. And if that was applied to, just, to today's statistics, it would be from like, um, like half of the United States, like probably about like Kansas, Nebraska, Arkansas, Oklahoma, that kind of area over to the West Coast, completely empty. That's 30% of America. And you're thinking like California has 38 million people. They have more people than Canada. 30% of our population would leave half the United States completely empty. Compared to Polish numbers back in like the 1940s, that wasn't a lot of people, but it was a, enough people to make a difference. And just like, so six million, Jewish people, like that percent of a percentage of a population, that's a significant loss, like of a number. You gotta remember too that Poland had, at the beginning of World War II, the largest Jewish population in Europe. That is insane to think. And it's scary because the way that our world is right now, you know, if we don't do something about it, it could happen again. Auschwitz-Birkenau is not part of Moniak's story. But it was the place where many, many Jews gasped their last breath. And it is a well-preserved uh, and just incredibly, um, the museum there is, is top-notch. You will be touring a lot of places today that some of you may not want to enter. And that's okay if you don't want to enter them. While the Nazis did not invent the concept of a concentration camp, they modified it to fit their purposes. We asked Dr. Kate Sorrells, a professor of history at the University of Cincinnati, if she could elaborate on the camps used by the Germans in World War II. The, the, the concentration camp system um, really dates to the very beginning of, of the regime. Um, and it started uh, with um, camps to um, imprison uh, political um, many of them communists and socialists. And then um, you start to see an expansion um, to uh, prisoners um, sent there on racial grounds, right? Less than on, well, in addition to political grounds. And that begins to happen right around um, the mid-1930s, 1935, um, when you see the, the Nuremberg racial laws. Auschwitz was not a single camp, but a system of camps built by the Germans in Poland during World War II. That's the concentration camp, Auschwitz I. And then later you get Auschwitz II, which is Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, which is the killing center. Over a million people were killed um, at Auschwitz in these three camps um, that made up the Auschwitz camp complex. Um, so about 1.1 million, um, just under a million Jews among them. And where we're headed to right now, that is the where where all those people are coming out of on the left hand side to your to the front here is the uh, um, famous entrance way where the train would enter. 
Yes, and then this is a tower up here was where guards were, and then you can see the guard towers all along the way here. We passed Auschwitz 2 and drove up to Auschwitz 1. The parking lot was full of tour buses from tourists and school groups. People of all ages and nationalities went through the security checkpoint to meet up with their tour guides. Out of respect, the team only brought minimal equipment with us, such as a few cameras for photography. For the podcast team, we brought a small portable recorder, which the security guards were still suspicious about. We were not allowed to record our tour guide in certain museums. This was a reminder for us that we weren't there to document, but to witness. Our group of college students, teachers, experts, and crew went through. We were given headphones for the tour because so many tour groups in multiple languages were also touring the camp. Our tour guide wore a microphone and began to lead us to the camp. Our first stop was the infamous gate with the phrase, Arbeit macht frei, work sets you free. This was a phrase SS guards used throughout multiple camps. However, Auschwitz is most famous for it. We were told on our tour the letters on the gate today are replicas because someone stole the original ones after the war. We walked through these gates and inside the camp surrounded by barbed wire, which once had electricity and would kill you on impact if you touched it. They still have the signs up around the camp that says halt, stoy, with crossbones on it. Barracks in Auschwitz I have been converted into museums. Block 4 was the most difficult for our group to get through because of its contents. Uh, the Nazis and uh, the concentration camp workers would shave off the, uh, the hair of the women and uh, send it to textiles. I, I remember our guide said something about like, um, like 40,000 women had to die like for all of that hair and um, it was just this huge display case just full of human hair. Um, so the first barrack that we went into, that was the room where it was the evidence of uh, murders, I think like the systematic murders. Um, there was the documents and photos and then there's also the rooms with the belongings. Um, I knew, I mean, everybody knows of the room with the hair and I knew that was probably going to be the hardest place for me to go into. Um, and I mean, it was, I took about four to five steps in and the room was dark and I think it had a purple light or a purple tint to it. But I, I turned to the first, set of glass panes with the hair behind the glass and uh yeah it uh, emotion overtook me very quickly um i started to cry and then i was pulled out of the room with by susan um and susan tried to calm me down and it nothing was working and i i i basically i, I had a panic attack um sean and jody ended up pulling me out of the building altogether um, because Higgy just wanted me out of the out of the building and into fresh air. And I walked all the way back up to you near know, the security checkpoint um, and they calmed me down. And um, yeah, I afterwards I got like this head splitting headache. It was awful. Um, and it was just due to the lack of oxygen. I was um, not getting or getting. And then after, from that point on, whenever there was a difficult room or a difficult area, I just couldn't do it. Um, and 
part of me felt ashamed for not doing it. But another part, I just kind of continued to remind myself that I was human and it's okay to react that way. Um, and Jody and Sean said the first time they, they both came here, it was extremely difficult for them too. So my reaction was a completely normal one. Which is the hardest room, in my opinion, is the hardest room, the room with the hair, the room with the baby clothes, like what's been left behind, because what it is, it's not about numbers, it's about people. And it's like you really realize the loss in those rooms. You realize that these are human beings, that they're not statistics. And it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. After that, it just kept layering on with their suitcases, their own personal suitcases that they brought their items in with their names on it and years. Then eyeglasses, the people's eyeglasses, then the shoes. I just really broke down when we went into this one room and there was a really small display case um, and you had to walk up to it to see it and you looked down at it and it was just, um, it was children's clothes. We checked in with each other and for those who chose to continue, we went through more barrack-turned museums. Susan Felder, the playwright of the Innovative Play Project, weighed in on one barrack we went to. I went into that room where uh, they were showing, you know, film of Hitler and at his rallies. And I had seen it before. It hit me in a different way. This time what I saw is what I see on the nightly news which is happy faces cheering hate. It's very hard to talk about this without getting emotional. We also went to the barrack with the wall where prisoners were lined up and shot. Flowers were set there in memoriam. Just to the right of the wall were cells that prisoners were locked into. These cells were designed so they would not get enough oxygen and suffocate. Another barrack contained artwork found from the camps. Caleb Smiley weighed in on how it felt. I walked out. Um to the room that had all of the children's drawings that they had found in um, the various camps and such, and they'd been recreated by an artist, like re-hand drawn onto the wall at like true to size, and then just walking through all of those and watching, and I started crying very hard, and I couldn't stop myself. Um, I sort of tried to walk away from the group and hide it, but I was crying quite intensely. And I don't know why that was what got me. Probably just because it was it really humanized the the kids who lived there, and something about like the drawings that are just so innocent and like so similar to how like drawings that I would have made as a child or things that I've seen my friends make, and it's all very similar and also very different at the same time because. Such a tragic situation, a tragic thing. And you knew what was happening to those children and what was happening around them and what they were experiencing. And, and also just the, how they were recreated at life size. It looked like pencil. It looked like uh, on the wall, just the white wall. It looked like something somebody had scribbled on there and just graffiti, like it looked so unimportant. But it was like the last remaining traces of these children and like their humanity as opposed to just the items that they own, like the, the, their, their clothing and whatnot, or their hair. A barrack we passed through had a hallway. On one side were the pictures of male prisoners who died, and on the other side, female prisoners. Each picture had the person's name, their assigned number, nationality, date of birth, when they were deported to Auschwitz, 
and the date they died. The length of time between the prisoners arriving at Auschwitz and the time they died was often very short. I wanted to look at every picture. I felt like I like owed them to look at like to look at every face, but we just didn't have time and I just felt bad. We also passed by the barracks where the infamous experiments occurred. Beyond the killing, the Auschwitz-Birkenau complex was the site of other heinous activities, such as the medical experimentation on prisoners. One example is the case of Nazi doctor Josef Mengele, nicknamed the Angel of Death. Among his experiments, he targeted twins in order to find a way to increase birth rates of German women. At the end of the experiments, he killed the children and performed pathological examinations. The killing of Jews escalated during 1942 to 1943. The impetus for this was the Von C Conference. At this meeting, one of the planners of the final solution, Reinhard Heydrich, presented this plan to key personnel from the Nazi government. Heydrich, also known as the Butcher of Prague, was assassinated in May 1942 by Czechoslovakian resistance members, sparking a horrendous retribution in Prague and the total destruction of nearby Lidice. Despite his death, the final solution proceeded with a terrible effectiveness. The Vanzi Conference is really important because this um, is where this coordination um, and implementation are sorted out, and that is what's necessary in order for this tremendous escalation of the violence. It was a chance for the Nazi Party, for the SS, to um, get the government, the German government ministries. Um, that would be necessary in order to carry this out, to get them on board. And they did, right? There was no um, opposition from any of those government ministries um, represented. So for example, the um, Foreign Office and the Ministry of the Interior, um, these major um, agencies within the German government um, went along with, with all of this. And it was, you know, the term final solution was kind of Bleak, you know, it's not totally clear what it means. Um, they knew exactly what it meant. Um, and they're using terms like extermination. Our final stop at Auschwitz I was the gas chamber and crematorium, which had been preserved. The gas chamber was a large concrete room with several holes in the ceiling through which gas canisters were thrown to kill the prisoners. Attached to the gas chamber was the crematorium with two ovens. Some people chose not to. Even though I had been crying and barely making it through the camp, I felt it was almost my duty to witness it. So I went inside, first to the room where they were gassed, and I'll never forget that feeling. I have tears in my eyes just thinking about it. This room, this stuffy, dank room was where so many people lost their lives to prejudice and injustice. Every step that I took, I was stepping in this spot of someone uh, where someone had died and had been murdered, gassed to death, every step I took because they were packed so tightly. Our Auschwitz tour guide took us on a bus to the second camp, Auschwitz II Birkenau. The bus dropped us off at the infamous gate where the train tracks go through. Birkenau is much larger than Auschwitz I. 
Some of the barracks are gone because locals in the town stole the materials after the war. We passed by a cattle car train while walking along the train tracks. On either side of us was barbed wire. Walking to the end of the camp, where the forest meets the green grass that is regularly upkept, there was the ruins of the Birkenau crematorium and gas chamber. This was where countless people lost their lives upon arrival at Auschwitz. Nazis bombed it days before Auschwitz was liberated. There's a third Auschwitz camp beyond Birkenau, but it is not well kept like Auschwitz I and Birkenau have been. At the end of Birkenau are plaques with the same statement in multiple languages. In English it reads, Forever let this place be a cry of despair and a warning to humanity. Where the Nazis murdered about one and a half million men, women, and children from various countries of Europe. Auschwitz-Birkenau, 1940-1945. We walked back to the front of the camp to enter into a barrack replica and a latrine replica. This is what it is. Don't see any toilet paper holders. No privacy. You just do your business best you can in 30 seconds. Next group in. You met, you know, that just adds to the dehumanizing of the, the, the prisoners here. And also, you know, think about how sick they were. They must have been. They all went to the bathroom here together, but where they were able to wash over here where the sinks were. Um, you have to understand that a lot of people retained their dignity any way that they possibly could. Um, and Primo Levi talks about one um, prisoner who he was with who constantly was washing himself. And he constantly said to Primo, Make sh you know, I want to feel human. I never want to feel inhuman. And that was his way. And Primo questioned him because it was like, how do you have time? You don't have enough time. They make you come in. You have to go out. But he always found a way to wash to keep his um, human dignity going. So those are some of the things to consider. Um, I know our guide has told you a lot about all the horrible things um, but people, even within that horror, tried to maintain their humanity. So that's something to consider as well. As we left Birkenau to our bus, it began to rain. Every concentration camp I've been to, it's been weather like this. Has it? Really? Gloomy. And this summer, still with us. And everywhere on the trip in March was sunny and beautiful. And I trip till now, we've had fairly clear weather. I thought I was ready to witness it. I learned the moment our bus drove by the barracks in Auschwitz II Birkenau that I was not. No one ever is ready to see such historical human atrocity. My heart sank down to my stomach. The aura in the air was unmistakable. It felt like a field of ghosts. When we finished the tour, we went back to the main building. Thankfully, there wasn't a gift shop per se, but a bookstore with books on Auschwitz in many different languages. I saw English, German, Polish, Spanish, Japanese, Chinese, and maybe more. It was clear by the number of tour groups that this is a famous destination, and rightfully so. It is a landmark to oppose bigotry. My only comfort while visiting this haunting place was when we ate lunch at the cafeteria. I finally got to try the famous Polish Zurich soup. What's in it depends on where you go in Poland, but it is a sour soup with sausage and vegetables. It was nice to experience some Polish culture and to renew after bearing witness.
But as we were leaving, we heard the horrific news. There was an anti-Semitic attack at a synagogue in Germany while we were touring Auschwitz the same day. That reminded us why we were bearing witness to these historical places. What happened happened, it could happen again, and it will happen again, unless we do something to stop it. I know it was trying for a lot of people, so I appreciate that you stuck with it. And I, uh, again, I'm here for you. After the emotionally draining experience of Auschwitz, we had a well-deserved break in the historic city of Krakow. Krakow is a bucket list location to visit, and while we had less than a day, we had toured parts of the historic old city of Krakow. It was obvious upon arrival this is a famous destination for bachelor and bachelorette parties. The horse carriage rides, the marketplace full of gift shops, the drinking. It was a beautiful old town juxtaposed with modern tourism. Hands down, Krakow was my favorite city. I love this place so much. There was a mix of medieval and modernity in such a lively city. We had gone to the market square for some dinner and shopping and we had stumbled upon my favorite place, Starbucks. I remember they were showing the film Joker at the local movie theater. One showing was in Polish and the other was in English with subtitles. Imagine if that was common in the United States to have more foreign films playing at mainstream movie theaters and the option to see it either in its native language or dubbed. I went to Cloth Hall and bought a few souvenirs, including a bear nesting doll for my grandmother. I remember one shop sold these amazing looking swords, but no way I was gonna get that through airport security. I love Krakow. The people are friendly, the food and drinks are great, especially the pierogi. Unlike Warsaw, Krakow escaped relatively damage-free from World War II. The city is stunning, especially in the old town section with its medieval architecture. The Rynek Kłowny, or main market square, is the largest in Eastern Central Europe. Attractions in the Rynek include the Cloth Hall, a Renaissance training area, St. Mary's Basilica, and assorted restaurants and pubs. There are beautiful churches throughout the old town, as well as the Jagiellonian University, which was founded in the 14th century. Famous alumni of this university include Pope John Paul II and Mikulaj Kopernik, better known as Copernicus. At St. Mary's Basilica, a lone trumpet player plays at the top of the tower every hour on the hour in all four directions. It is a five note anthem played multiple times, but it ends abruptly. According to legend, the trumpet player was in the tower and observed the approach of Mongol soldiers, so he started sounding the alarm with his trumpet. The trumpeter was silenced with an arrow to the throat, which is why the song comes to an abrupt end. It is a very unique tradition to crack off and a must-see performance. After shopping for gifts and eating out, it started storming on us. Disoriented, we got lost and couldn't find our way back to our hotel. We wandered the streets of this old town aimlessly, sticking together as a group to avoid pickpocketing. Finally, we returned to our nice dry hotel. Oddly enough, my roommate Nicole and I got a special movie-themed corner room. We got a Star Wars Force Awakens poster and a Pulp Fiction poster. Oh, our bathroom switch doesn't work. Oh my god. Wait, give it a second. There you go. Yeah. We used this bigger hotel room to film our nightly confessional videos. This was a project where the team of students set up a camera in one hotel room and each person would sit down and reflect on what they saw that day. It felt like I was on a movie set. Like, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Like, I just could not believe that it was real. I didn't know what I was expecting, 
It's basically a faceless tragedy to who it happened to. But going there and getting the extra context of the people, the person who this happened to, is just, it, it changes the entire narrative of what the Holocaust was. It was, it was like, a, like a stomach ache that wouldn't go away. And it's something that I'll never forget. Those were all people and like, they just went to work like everyone else and they went to school like everyone else and like they had dinner like as a family. And they were just normal people and the only difference is that they were Jewish. I wish it never happened. I wish I wasn't here. I wish none of this had ever happened, but it did, and I'm here. I don't know how humans can be so inhumane to other humans. Like, we're all people. We're all the same because we're people. We all have stories. While we spent the last three days traveling, eating, and resting, Moniak spent that same amount of time on a hellish three-day journey stuffed inside a cattle car full of people on his way from Chinstehova to an unknown location. It was time to return to his story. After spending the night in Krakow, we packed and went to the airport. Okay, so this is uh, the last time that I can really say Jin Dobre. We are leaving Poland. Our next stop, Germany. Creating Hope After Hate is a podcast made by Carly Coulihan, Sean Liming, and Madison White. Podcast editing done by Carly Coulihan. Special thanks to Jonathan Kilberg for additional sound engineering and Ethan Qureshi for music composition. For more information on the project and how to get involved, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Hope After Hate.